Hey folks, this is Anatoly and you're listening to the No Sharding Podcast. And today I'm super excited to have Dieter with me, who is the CTO of Dapper Labs and the chief architect of the Flow blockchain, which is also no sharding. So I'm, I'm like, I'm, I've been like waiting to talk to you for such a long time since you guys announced Flow. <laughs> yeah, no, we, uh, we, we, uh, we were pretty strongly uh, opposed to sharding, which is actually how we got started building Flow in the first place. Cool. Um, uh, so I guess what are your reasons? Like uh, I have my own, but I don't want to like you know feed you my my reasons. <laughs> well, honestly, it's just something amazing happened when we launched CryptoKitties, um, and it was the creation of this little project called Kitty Hats, um, and it's it's a toy for a toy, right? Like CryptoKitties was a toy, Kitty Hats were a toy that you could dress your kitties up in, but it completely blew me away because we had created this smart contract. Um, and, and of course, you know, we wanted to protect it from, you know, people messing with it. And so it, it was, it was reasonably well secure. It's never been hacked. Um, and, and yeah, what I hadn't occurred to me is that somebody else could create another smart contract that would work with that and, and extend it and add functionality to it. Um, and so it was kind of like they were making a mod for our game, except that unlike mods in sort of desktop games, they couldn't mess anything up. Right. They, they had to follow the same rules of their smart contract that any hacker who was trying to break our smart contract had to follow. Um, and so they could make all sorts of changes on top of it, add, you know, complete new functionality to our crypto kitties. You can put hats, sunglasses, shoes on crypto kitties. Um, and it was their own smart contract built on top. And that really, really opened my eyes to what, you know, the industry now calls composability. Um, but I just got so excited about that. We talked a ton about it here and we realized that that maybe the real superpower of blockchains wasn't that, you know, you could create these smart contracts, but that the smart contracts could talk to each other and that that the sort of the dream of of. I think every, you know, of computer science in, in all history of like reusable components um, could be fully realized in this environment. And um, then we started looking at all these blockchains that promised uh, high scale. They all sort of broke that promise by 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 saying like, hey, um, you the value of blockchains is that you can have smart contracts and that you have these like atomic state mutations. Um, and and isn't it neat that smart contracts can talk to smart contracts, except, oh, in a sharded blockchain, when one smart contract talks to the other one, suddenly that atomicity goes out the window. And suddenly you have to worry about all of these, you know, not just reentrancy attacks, right? We have bad enough problems on Ethereum with reentrancy attacks, but now we have to worry about like proper um, uh, concurrency issues. Um, and I, I just felt that that was... It wasn't going to make it impossible for smart contracts to work with each other, but it was going to make it so much harder that I felt like a lot less cool things would be made. Um, and we wanted a blockchain where these cool things could happen. We thought that the future of entertainment um, was presaged by crypto kitties and kitty hats and that kind of idea of people building on top of other people's primitives and making new primitives in the process that someone else could build on top of. And, you know, that's happening now, right? We're seeing it happening now in the DeFi space on Ethereum. Um, none of that was happening at, at the beginning of 2018 when we were first thinking about this stuff. But, you know, I think most of the blockchain community sort of understands composability now, understands the complexities that, I don't know if people understand completely the complexities. Like, it's really, really hard to I mean, get this stuff. I, yeah, I 100% agree with you. Unless you have worked on like something like Erlang, <laughs> like where you're dealing with like a thousand processes that have like their own weird state machines. Like, I don't think people have like been faced with a, a daunting challenge of like, oh, I have a thousand shards with interdependencies. I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's absolutely correct that, that people haven't thought about it enough. And And one of the things that you know, I like to point to is, is that, you know, we had a whole decade, 15 years where everyone in the industry was excited about NoSQL, about eventual consistency, all of the scaling capabilities that that provided. MongoDB was, you know, the bee's knees. Um, and now we're starting to go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Not having atomicity is like, is actually makes things really, really hard. It makes certain certain kinds of bugs and edge cases pop up. And guess what? The financial world never used that stuff because they understood the, the limits of it. And so to take a, a platform where the whole reason you're paying, you know, what 
regardless of how efficient your blockchain is, you're paying a premium to have the computation done in this, you know, verifiable environment um, and saying that, oh, well, those computations still have to deal with all of this eventual consistency. I, I just don't I just don't see it uh, being nearly as powerful as as when you can create those atomicity guarantees. Yeah, just just as somebody like 100 percent would agree with you. Like this is even coming from my experience working with like more like academic based operating systems where there's just kind of like this microkernel design where imagine you have this minimal kernel and then everything else is its own separate protection domain, separate process, and it all runs separately and can all crash separately. Well, <laughs> that's great and all, but the Linux kernel is one giant monolithic beast because when stuff goes wrong, you actually need to examine a bunch of state at the same time and make like one atomic decision. And it, it's really hard to do that, to build those systems correctly. Like when you have a bunch of, when you can't make those atomic guarantees. And to me, that's like, I think, fundamental thing that folks are just starting to realize like in, in the sharding space. And I don't think they'll solve it, you know, for a decade, which about how long it took databases to solve it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's like... was there was there a particular motivating example for Solana that that made you want to issue sharding right off the bat? I honestly just didn't think anybody else would do it this way. Like I thought, like obviously you, this is the last thing you want to do because how are you going to deal with the two states between two shards? You're effectively doing the generals problem all over again. <laughs> like why would you do that? So I personally thought that everyone else is going to do what we were going to do. And I was just trying to make it, build it as fast as it could. But um, I guess Vitalik sneezed and it sounded like sharding. And then everybody just started building sharding, sharded systems. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I, I think part of the reason why our perspective is different is because we started as DAP developers, right? We started, our first thing was a smart contract. It wasn't a protocol. Um, and so I think that as a protocol developer, it's really tempting to push that complexity up into the DAP layer and just say, hey, look, we have asynchrony at the network layer. It has to exist. So like, let's, that's just a part of life. So, you know, yes, there are, there are constructs that let you work you know, work around that. Um, and it's just it's just going to have to be up to DAP developers or smart contractor developers to implement some of those. Um, and we just we just said, no, that's that's too much complexity. We don't want to put that on all the developers um, because we, we're developers and we wouldn't want a protocol developer to, to foist that on us. So that's sort of that's sort of how how we ended up there. I think, yeah, I mean, like some of that stuff could be kind of hidden with like features and stuff. There's been we, we are 10 years after, you know, it's been 10 years since we had asynchronous APIs as kind of the de facto mechanism on the web, right? Like, and there's better tooling around that now. To me, like I was more concerned, not from just that perspective, like as, an, as, as somebody that, you know, wants to code, I don't want to deal with even threads, right? I just want, when people ask me what kind of hardware I want, I want like a single threaded CPU that's infinitely fast. <laughs> <laughs> right like give me the fastest possible single single core system and then i don't have to deal with anything right with the with as biggest l2 caches as, as you can get uh, and like dealing with just multiple threads and multiple states is, is such a complex problem um but i was worried that even on the protocol level like people are i think they think that they can solve the sharding problems <laughs> because maybe on the surface it looks easy oh we like split the nodes and do subcommittees and rotate them around. But then when you actually start implementing it or start thinking about how that data moves and how all that stuff comes together, you get into, I think, way more edge cases in a permissionless environment where any one of these events could like be used to like grief or slow down the network or just like, just, it just seems like the, the number of permutations just like starts 10xing and every one of these things that you add. Yeah, the complexity involved is is truly astounding. Um, you know, it's bad enough to build <laughs> distributed systems, and and you know, that, that's certainly you know we we've been trying to hire people who at least understand that problem. Um, but then when you start bringing yeah Byzantine actors into it, it it's a whole other layer. So so you guys, um, I remember if I recall correctly, you guys are using hot stuff, but you guys added an improvement to it, which. Um, do you want, can, can you kind of go over it? 
Well, hot stuff, the consensus itself, uh, the core consensus algorithm itself is, is pretty bog standard hot stuff. Um, the real difference is, is in terms of how the network is structured. And so, um, you know, I, I've actually just been doing some reading about, about rollups and, and, you know, the, the architecture we came up with, um, we came up with it before people were talking about rollups very much, but, um, it, it's in some ways it's the same, a lot of the same ideas just baked into layer one. And so what we're doing is, is that the consensus nodes are coming to consensus on, uh, commitments made by what we call collectors, um, to which transactions are going to be in that block. And then the execution nodes are actually, uh, running the computation. Um, but critically, the execution nodes don't get to decide what transactions are selected. Um, they have no part in that. That's that's the collector nodes doing that. Um, and and so they literally have zero power, right? They're told what to compute. They have all the computing power and none of the none of the consensus power. Um, and so they're they're involved in a fully deterministic uh, process, right? And and of course, computation in all these blockchains, uh, provided they're actually secure and not like a few I could name, um, it has to be fully deterministic. Um, otherwise, it can't be verifiable. And so um, the where where we diverge from what most other folks are doing is in terms of that actually outer layer. The the consensus process itself is pretty straightforward. We just we just really liked hot stuff and, and we are implementing our own version of it. Um, our own, like we're, we're coding up a Go version of it. Um, but um, the, uh, the, the base algorithm right now um, hasn't, been, hasn't been modified. We have some research going on um, in terms of possible improvements, um, but none of that is, is, is gonna be in the, in the code that we're launching this year. Got it, cool. Um, yeah, uh, we kind of think you know, this is probably just similar minds driving towards the same problem. We also have some separation between linearization, as I kind of like to think about it, and execution. But the linearization happens just in the block producer. So in the sense that, like, as soon as the block is produced, the validators do the computation, and then they agree both on the block and the computed state. Uh, and I agree with you. Like, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if that's necessary, right? It was just kind of like convenient at that point because the additional latency of starting up like another process, which could run on the same machine, right? I'm sure that's in, in your guys, in your deployment, collectors and executors will probably overlap some in, in the actual hardware, right? Like, um, again, like it, to me, like these seem like more obvious choices um, as compared to like, traditional blockchains where you both compute the block and the state and kind of the, the vote for it with your proof of work. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's really the most important uh, insight that, that we had. And it, it sounds like you guys are picking up on that. I know that Nier has sort of picked up on that a little bit. Oasis is using those ideas where you're, where you, where the, you realize that like, you can make a commitment to what transactions are gonna be in the block before you actually know what the output of those transactions are because those transactions are fully deterministic. Um, and once you've done that, that's like a, that, that there's, there's a few different ways that you can exploit that, um, in, in a way that's, uh, that's, that's going to lead to, to pretty big improvements in performance without having to resort to sharding. Yeah. I've, I've recently started thinking, and this is all just my science fiction brain kind of going off. What is the smallest actual thing that we can come to consensus on? If we just had like took tendermint and like agreed on an RSA accumulator that just gave you inclusion proofs. Is this thing in there or not? Could you kind of get rid of a, a big pile of work and just build everything else on top of that? Like, I, I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been like any like succinct proofs of this is the smallest possible blockchain you can build everything else <laughs> like you can build on top of it. Well, I know that um, I think it was Benedict Bunz and Dan Bonet at Stanford uh, wrote a paper. It was definitely out of Stanford, with, and Dan was the one telling me about it. But um, they 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 proposed a blockchain that uses a UTXO model, where it was just two uh, RSA accumulators, right? The yeah. the unspent UTXOs and the spent UTXOs, yeah. um, and uh, and that's yeah, that's very very minimal. Um, but then you then run into the question of well, who's holding on to that state, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, there's only so far you want to go down that, uh, road before you run into practical limits of like, well, yeah, but how do you know the data even exists, right? Like we have a <laughs> commitment to the data, but 
but how do we know the data exists? <clears throat> this has been the hardest part as we have like coded this blockchain, the, the, like the data availability problems, like people think consensus is hard, but implementation, it's the data availability. That is the hardest part of this whole thing. It's just banging your head against the wall hard because networks suck. <laughs> just like networking sucks. Uh, we made this like really uh, like, well, we, we thought that when we were going to deploy that the kind of co-located validators that we were observing would have high enough quality internet that we could use 64 kilobyte UDP frames. And that was a mistake. And we basically had to rewrite our entire network stack to do 50 times more work to fit within an MTU path. Right. Um, and that, of course, right, means that now you have way more data availability problems because in those big jumbo frames, we could uh, encode whole transactions and hold, effectively hold pieces of the block. So when you receive this frame, you kind of know this frame entirely belongs in a particular block signed by the leader, and you can kind of verify it on its own. But when you're receiving chunks, even though they're signed, you don't know if those chunks are the same block or duplicate part, right? Which is a daily availability problem. So if you have an attacker that produces two blocks for your network and they spread out these shards, sharded, you know, uh, shards that you have to wholly reassemble to know exactly which blocks are which, it becomes a much hairier problem, <laughs> right? Yeah, just no, simply I... that. <laughs> it just, just sucks. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because when I was when we were first researching uh, various blockchain scaling solutions in 2018, um, uh, right after CryptoKitties sort of melted down Ethereum, you know, one one of the, I remember reading one of the quotes, and I think it was from um, uh, uh, Carl uh, Charles Hoskins, I O I O H K. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was saying that like the real problem is is network traffic. And I remember, I remember like at first going like, yeah, I'm sure that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. um, but no one else talks about it. And, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's, it's one of the parts of our network that at launch is not going to be nearly as optimized as we want. And when, you know, I was talking earlier about, you know, doing further consensus research and thinking about ways to improve hot stuff. And the vast majority of it is happening like uh, the, you know, when you talk to academics and people who are looking at it, it's all about communication complexity, right? Like, Tendermint is beautiful and elegant and wildly uh, impractical uh, in terms of communication complexity. And if you can figure out a, a more efficient way to get those those votes around to people, um, that's where the real win comes. Yeah, yeah. And like, unfortunately, like I haven't seen like, I don't know, like I, I guess the way we've ch we've tackled this problem is we've almost built specialized protocols for different layers of the network. And I don't know if you guys are seeing the same kind of thing. Like we have a gossip layer because we need some super reliable mechanism to to know like membership of the network. We kind of need to know who the who what the network is and who's who are the current set of participants and just the what are their physical endpoints. But then the blocks themselves, right? Like if you're building a highly optimized network, you can't propagate blocks through gossip. So that's like a whole separate protocol in itself. Like, I don't know if you guys have, have started specializing kind of different functions with with different protocols on the, on the networking layer. No, no, we absolutely have. And and so, yeah, exactly. Some stuff, the block headers just go out and, and gossip to everybody. Um, other stuff, it's what we call the one to K uh, pattern where... Um, somebody needs some data. They know that there's a very large number of people who have that data. Um, and so they randomly sample K people and, and all ask them for the data. But in an ideal world, and, and this is one of those optimizations we haven't implemented yet, um, you're getting you know a piece from each of them or you're getting one of them start sending and then you tell the other ones, please don't send. And what we're running, you know, what, what we're living with right now is, is that you often get K responses when you only need one. Yep. Um, and so um, when the network launches, we'll probably just, you know, tune K to be relatively small, but um, that limits your Byzantine fault tolerance and leads to, you know, in, in the case of network problems leads to, to uh, you know, re-requests. So um, I do think that there's some pretty interesting stuff that can happen um, in scenarios like that um, where, you know, and, and we're using libp2p, uh, which does have the sort of, um, I can't remember what they call it, but it's more or less a BitTorrent style. You ask, you know, 10 people for a file, they each give you a chunk and then 
Um, Got it. And then you can, you know, you have a hash tree to, to rebuild it. Um, so, so that's definitely something that, that we're looking at, but um, yeah, I think, I think that that's a, that's a huge area for, for optimization in, in most networks, including ours. Um, it's, does lip P2P have its own gossip layer too? I don't, I don't remember yeah, it, it, it has gossip. We're using their their basic gossip functionality. Um, and it's it's fine, right? Like it works and it's reliable. But um, it, it's interesting because I feel like libp2p, um, we're in a world now where most of these networks are moving towards proof of stake and you do have a, an idea of who the participants are. And so some sort of Byzantine fault tolerant routing, I mean, I, you used to, I don't know if you still call it Avalanche. You used to call it Avalanche. Maybe you don't call it that oh, anymore. Turbine. Yeah, after, after, turbine M, now? after MN released his his, right. uh, his project, Aval- Avalanche was a surf spot that we like surfed on every day. Like, he took oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this is some sort of Byzantine fault tolerant routing algorithm that, you know, recognizes the fact that there's redundancy, that multiple people have this data that you can recombine it and whatnot is is something and and I think our topology is different enough from from yours that we that we probably can't reuse too much like there's probably no code we could share but um, I, I, I do I, think that uh, yeah some of the I, ideas yeah yeah I, I think like people like look at the space and see everybody building something different uh, they don't realize how ideas flow so freely between projects um, it's almost I, I've never actually seen this in operating system land like it took years for something to go from bsd to linux you know like and from linux to windows i mean eventually they all kind of converge on a very similar thing but like in blockchain like a lot of projects even like us and near and like a bunch of other folks because i think we're all solving the same problems at the same time as soon as somebody has a good idea everyone else is like oh i'll borrow a piece of that Well, that actually reminds me of a, of of another another similarity between our projects. Um, is the I, we we're not taking we haven't taken the movie M into our project yet, but the you know we've got our own programming language that we're working on that we announced uh, last week, um, and um, it's based on that same basic notion of resource types that nice. um, that that's in Move. So. Um, I don't know if you guys had been looking at that. So before Libra announced it, there were a couple of researchers at CMU that were looking at using linear types. Um, and we were investigating that. And then um, and then when Move came out, it really crystallized a lot of ideas for us. And um, so I, I don't know if you've taken a look at, at the Cadence programming language, but we oh, think it's awesome. a really, we think it's a really nice way of, of like it's a much more ergonomic language than than I mean move move is a VM right it's yeah. it's a VM with a a slightly nicer assembly script <laughs> kind of format um, and so you know we've actually been talking to that team because you know they need a high level language and they have they have lots of stuff to do before they launch their network um, and so it, it seems like there might you know be some opportunity for collaboration there. Um, because, you know, they've, they've looked at what we're doing and there's, you know, it's not exact one-to-one match, but that core idea, which is, is the critical one that value that data structures that ref, that data structures that represent value should be protected by the compiler and the runtime is, I mean, that's such a powerful idea that it's almost insane that anyone thinks that we should write smart card tracks without that notion. I, dude, I couldn't agree more with you that that was like. You know, we were <laughs> we were ambitious enough to build our own like runtime operating system, but programming language is such a require. It's like a form of art, and um, we were really excited by Move because its resources are close to linear types, and uh, it's awesome to hear that you guys are using the same ideas. Greg, our CTO, is like a a huge fan of, of linear types, and we were both myself and him. We were like the two Haskell weenies at, at Qualcomm. We built a like a IDL compiler using this that we we built like you know three x ahead of schedule with a team that was only two instead of ten people, but nobody else could work on it, <laughs> 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 which is really unfortunate. But like I'm I'm glad like Rust and like these newer languages are starting to bleed some of these ideas into the mainstream. But yeah, I agree. I don't understand how people could write financial contracts without linear types. That that to me seems absurd. Yeah, well, he, he should definitely take out the flow playground. We'd love to get feedback. I think there's some parts of the syntax that are a little rough. We have some internal ideas that haven't been turned into code yet. So so you'll see that language evolve as we get closer to launch. But 
Um, I think it's a really nice language. You know, we talked to, we have, we have some great advisors that uh, have smart contracts out in the wild on Ethereum, and they really love how readable it is and, and how the, the language is actually protecting those, those valuable data structures. And I think, um, I think there's a really good chance with, you know, with you guys using Move, obviously Libra is using it as well. Um, and, you know, if we're able to get Cadence to, to compile down to the Move VM, I think that um, there's, there's a really good chance that that could be a, a really powerful new way to write smart contracts. I actually did some investigation the other day. So uh, I was looking at the Cosmos fungible token specification, right? They're, they're equivalent of ERC-20. Um, and it's uh, something like 300 lines of code. Three three fifty, um, no comments. It's just code. Three hundred lines of just raw code. <laughs> then you go look at OpenSession, right? <laughs> OpenSession has has their ERC twenty base implementation um, that lots of people use. Beautifully commented about one hundred and fifty lines of comments in that file. Uh, Two hundred and fifty lines total, so hundred lines of code, right? And and Cosmos, you know, using Rust compiling down to Wasm, managed to turn that into three hundred. Um, but when we look at our fungible token thing, it's a hundred lines of code, including comments. So we're, we're like almost half as many, just over half as many lines of code of actual uncomment code, um, than what we're seeing in solidity And the, you know, the functionality in each of those is very slightly different, but, um, I think those order of magnitudes are probably going to hold out. Um, and, you know, of course the people who are using Wasm are going to start to add primitives to the, to the language that, yep. um, so they have to, you know, don't have to use as many awkward syntax, but, um, I, I think that encoding that that value stuff right into the language is going to make a huge difference. Yeah, um, and I think also like I think properly designed runtimes should be able to handle mul multiple virtual machines. Like, there's no reason to think that you have to compile to Wasm and you can't run a VM in compile to Wasm, right? That processes cadence or or move, which is kind of like our what we did. Like it, it's just you, the underlying memory model needs to have some hooks to actually manage that state between the, the two domains. Yeah, exactly. So, so under under the under the hood, you can have you know a variety of different chip me mechanisms. But so long as the representation that smart contract developers are uploading is being checked, and that that those linear rules are being enforced, um, regardless of what. Uh, high-level language would, it was used before a compilation. Um, th that's that's the critical point. So, so there's this um, idea. Um, I forgot the name of the professor, but this was like in the '90s called proof-carrying code. That I thought was super fascinating. So it's a way to right. uh, it's a way to generate like assembly-level bytecode that contains proofs alongside of it that you can use to guarantee certain kinds of execution. And then you can do a single linear pass to verify the whole thing. And that I, I like that a lot. And I, I've actually been I've been thinking about that like just in a in a shower thoughts kind of way. We haven't put any serious effort behind it. But whether it's like uh, you know, like optimizations or or yeah, like proofs, like proving post conditions, right? We have we have pre and post conditions built into the language, um, but they're they're dynamically checked. There's no static analysis to prove that those things aren't, aren't violated, which is obviously going to have some runtime cost. And so, but it's occurred to me that both optimizations and proofs like that are are NP complete in the sense that it's it's very very hard to find the proof, but once you have the proof, it's very cheap to check it. Yep. And so, I, I think that's a that's a perfect um, exactly use case in, in smart contracts are a perfect use case for that because i don't mind if i have to run the the optimizer for an hour on my computer that's no problem yep. but it's a real problem if the the if the uh if the node software has to run the optimizer for an hour yeah exactly um, yeah yeah this is like to me was like a light bulb moment oh yeah obviously like and this is a problem again similar to operating systems because you can't like update the kernel safely right like updating the kernel is like a huge pain than like a security problem it's ring zero if you have a actual running system it takes a lot of work to do it correctly so folks built this thing called berkeley packet filter which was uh, i think out of the lab that was working on proof carrying code um, back in back in the time at berkeley packet filter only had two registers <laughs> it was a two register machine with like uh, no backwards jumps. So you could do like this very simple bytecode that could surprisingly solve a lot of problems for you, right? Like that you would want to programmatically and uh, dynamically update in the kernel. So these, I think, ideas are like have been done and I'm, 
I'm excited to see like folks starting to think about them in the in the smart contract space because having this like world computer that is safe to program, I think, is such a powerful thing. Yeah, well, you, you guys had actually explored using eBPF in in Solana, right? As as a smart contract language. Yeah, this was uh, we are still using it, but this took oh, really? so it took so much work to go from the tools that the eBPF community built, which are work fantastically for their use case, but trying to get general purpose Rust compiled to it meant that like we hit basically every un- unimplemented branch in LLVM in their backend, like. And when we're like, hey, guys, we built all this stuff, they're like, why are you doing this? We don't want this. <laughs> <laughs> so nice thing is that like any changes that the kernel will do, we can basically um, take it instantly because one, they're safe, they're ring zero safe, right? They're, and they're, the problems that they're working on is so self-contained that it's effectively a subset of everything that we that we would be doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, the you know, the the idea that taking a language that is designed from one context and putting it together is one of the reasons we were skeptical about using Wasm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think especially in the smart contracts, talking to smart contracts use case, right? Um, Wasm, I, I don't know if you've looked into Wasm in too much, but it has a flat memory space and zero memory protection. Um, <laughs> so... Um, Yep. Uh, you're, you're spinning. You, you would have to spin up a different VM for instance for every single smart contract that we're interacting in a, inside a transaction. So that could get that could get pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. It, it's like a cool language that I think will work well for the web, but I th- I'm not sure. Like I think honestly, like a team that like took Java and optimized it for ARM ARM at Google could make Wasm work in anything. Right. But it takes that team, right? And we don't have that team, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had that team. <laughs> um, uh, so you guys are planning on running Cadence as a VM, so the nodes are actually going to run the verifier? Yeah, so the we've actually, and that's when I was talking about some of the things that we're talking to the Move team to figure out what the right way to, to make Cadence work with Move VM is, is that they they use a static verification process that um, we would, we have a, we lean towards dynamic checks um, for certain things. Um, and in particular, uh, one of the things is getting way in the weeds, but hopefully that's what your listeners love um, is, is this idea of, of calling through uh, an interface, right? So you have, um, you know, like, I mean, the classic example is, is the example that, um, actually causes headaches. And, and the reason why the, the move team was shying away from it is sort of, you know, I send you some ETH and that lets your code run. And, you know, the DAO hack was that code then was maliciously crafted to, to go and, and attack that smart contract. And so, um, you know, so their, their answer, which I think might make use, might make sense in the context of a, a really financially oriented blockchain was to say, well, let's just not allow that, right? Like we make sure that every function call is statically determined and we know exactly what the code is going to do before it, it does it. Um, whereas we feel like the power of, of being able to do dynamic dispatch through interfaces is really, really powerful. Um, and so we've got some, uh, you know, we, we've realized that reentrancy at least is not a problem um, because what's fascinating about linear types is that a linear type, there's only one reference to that object. And so you can't make a recursive call to it. You can't make a reentrant call to it because how would you get the reference to use to make the call? Because there's only one reference to it. And if that function's already on the stack, then somebody else has it. Um, and so the resource types actually using linear types um, actually completely gets reentrancy off the table, um, unless you're directly using global state, caveat, caveat. But I think most people don't need to use that. Um, and so the facility exists in Cadence, but it's something that we're trying to, we're actually making the syntax more difficult to use in that case because um, uh, it, uh, it it can lead to bugs like that. But um, I do think that, that that dynamic dispatch is really, really powerful. And there's some really interesting stuff that you can do with it. Um, you know, and uh, have that work in. I, I had like, um, so we have like a similar problem that we're working on. And it's similar to dynamic dispatch. It's, it is effectively dynamic dispatch. It's, it's 
programs that are making calls to other programs, right? So they're effectively some, run some computation and they decide, do I call like program one or program two? And that could cascade down to a number of calls. One idea that I had, and this was, I haven't seen anyone do this kind of, this form of consistency is in the transaction itself. One, it's easy to specify the memory that the programs are going to read or write. That, that part is easy. But the other one is, what if we also specify the execution path that we expect this call to take? So the programmer effectively can pre-run and pre-compute, right? And know ahead of time that, hey, I'm calling program A on this world computer. I wanted to do this state transition. I expect it to take the following branches. And... To me, that means like that means I'm signing something that I have. I know exactly what it's going to do, right? I'm signing it, and if it doesn't follow that path, then it aborts, right? And no harm nor foul. Yeah, I mean, I I think that having something like that as an optimization uh, can make a ton of sense. Um, but I do think that there are interesting use cases where that where you can think of transactions where you're like, well, no, I actually do want the transaction to try this thing. And if that thing fails, then I want to try this other thing. And um, and I don't know which path it's going to take. Uh, and you know, the example I always use, because because this is you know my whole world is filtered through CryptoKitties, is you know like maybe I want to go and buy a cat off the marketplace, and there's two cats with the trade I want, but I only need one of them. And so I want a single transaction that's going to go try and buy the first one, and if that fails, buy the second one. But if the first one succeeds, I don't need to buy the second one. And so I can't tell you because. Anybody else could have been trying to buy any of either of those cats um, at the, you know, in the blocks between, you know, the state I know about and the the block that includes my transaction. And so, um, and so you, I think that there's, again, I think optimizing for that and saying, hey, I believe this is the code path and I'm willing to maybe even, you know, pay extra gas cost if it goes on this other code path, because I know that, you know, you're, you're you're doing you know some sort of process scheduling et cetera et cetera, um, but I, I think that uh, I think that not allowing the capability for um, for decisions to be made based on on the complete chain state is is going to be a, is going to be pretty limiting. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that's like um, that's such a like fundamental tricky problem to solve because the knee jerk reaction from like a safety perspective is like have the transaction tell you exactly what the state is at the start and the state at the end, right? And fail otherwise. <laughs> and that breaks so many things. And like, I think my experience with Ethereum is like the, the stupid nonce, right? That you have to like know ahead of time. It's just like such a, it limits, how, it, it is effectively like a limiting of how much information we can exchange on the system, right? And like, again, my my fundamental vision is like these world computers are, are like information machines where we are trying to come up with like almost like what is the current state of, you know, if this if it's a financial market, then it should be the most optimized financial market ever. Right. Because we can synchronize at like the fastest possible cadence globally, like all this information needs to be compiled and exercised and synchronized at once. And if you have to do a round trip time between every user and this thing every time, just like the delays add up, right? Those costs are like, I think, effectively, like somebody will build a faster system and take years over. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, the irony is, is that like, you know, you're looking at your system and you're saying, well, dang, like if I knew if every trans if i could say with absolute certainty what every transaction was going to do before it did it like i could optimize the heck out of this but that's exactly the world in which sharding makes sense right like yeah. <laughs> right like if, yep. if if all the transactions don't have an overlap in the state that they're reading from and writing to then then sharding's no problem and it's and it's that it's where that complexity and where the transactions that's why blockchains are interesting, right? If my computation doesn't interact with your computation, we don't even need to be on the same network, let alone the same shard. But what makes blockchains interesting is, is that we are on the same network and we we do impact each other's uh, state. And and that's that's the uh, that's the power of this stuff. Right, and breaking those consistency guarantees are necessary, but also that's where the dragons are, right? This is where you end up with like unintended programmer errors that lead to like, you know, stuff like the DAO hack, but maybe a different form of it. That <laughs> that, that is like, I, I think a tricky thing that um, we are starting to realize that like the, the more power you give to these systems, the 
the more careful you need to be. And like, I'm, I'm really excited that you guys are also building a linear type language. Um, to me, that's kind of the future. I'd love to like port it as well. <laughs> well, I, like I said, if, if, if so long as the version of the movie M you're using is similar to what Libra ends up using, um, it, it may be that, that work you, awesome. you might, might be very little work for you. So awesome. yeah, that's fantastic. Um, are you, um, are you guys, um, I guess, do you guys see that language project as kind of a separate project with its own open source community, or do you want it to be like integral to flow? Well, I mean, it has to serve flow first, but that, that is definitely not the goal is for it to be, to be, uh, strictly part of flow. In fact, what we're going to license it separately. Uh, the current plan is to license it separately. Nothing's been, uh, formally released, um, yet, but, but I think that it makes sense for it to be licensed separately um uh, so that it can be easily integrated into other projects um the core node software we, i think we're going to be using the agpl because we we actually want the requirement that if you're running a node on our network that the source code for that node is available um and uh if you want to use our you know whereas something like apache makes sense for the language because if you're using our language on our network then the Apache license gets superseded by the AGPL. And so if you're using a custom version of our runtime, you have to make that code available. But if you're using our language in another network, um, and you know, Libra is obviously one we're thinking of, but you know, it would make sense uh, if, if Solana was using the MovieM as well, then then Apache can can then be used by any other license. Uh, it's, it, it, it lets itself be superseded. So so I think that that's, that's probably how we'll go with it because you know, at the end of the day, the, I mean, uh, the language doesn't need to be tied to the to the blockchain. Um, we want a good language for our uh, our our developers, but um, if the language can succeed elsewhere, we'd love to see that happen. Cool, that's awesome. Um, that's amazing. Like all these awesome teams are building open source tools. That's <laughs> myself as like somebody that grew up in the '90s and saw the whole SEO versus IBM thing. This has been like such a tremendous change. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, you know, and and you know, uh, and more uh, more Steve Ballmer than Bill Gates, but Microsoft really railing against like all of this open source stuff. <laughs> and now, you know, like that's their biggest money maker is Azure all running on on this commodity uh, open source stuff. So it's, yeah. it's it creates way more value than it destroys. Absolutely. So yeah. we're we're happy to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty funny that Microsoft makes more money off Linux. I, I, I don't know. That... <laughs> yeah, to, to become a Linux, um, like I think that's like the goal. Uh, that should be the goal of any of our projects, right? I don't know. Do you, do you feel that way? Like to be the Linux of, uh, in this space? I, I think so. Like I think that, you know, and, and at, at the end of the day, these are networks with network effects. And so... You know, there's, is it likely that there'll be, you know, different sub networks that, that have communities around them, like maybe like, you know, more enterprise oriented versus more consumer entertainment oriented versus, you know, maybe, you know, financial markets oriented, maybe, right? Like, um, and, and, but, but certainly within those domains, right? Like, and again, right, I come right back to Kitty Hats, right? Kitty Hats is this amazing thing where those guys would have never built a hat project if there hadn't been Crypto Kitties. Um, and yet they created so much value for us and our users while they were creating value for themselves. And that that is the very definition of network effects and ecosystem uh, value. And 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 I think that, you know, there were, you know, you know, in the early days of the internet, we we thought that was gonna happen, right? We thought that there would be open APIs and and that you know all of these services would talk to each other. And when networks are early, they they love that stuff, right? Twitter was, you know, Twitter became popular on the backs of third-party client software because they had this amazing API that people could tap into. But the moment that Twitter felt like they were going to start to monetize, needed to start to monetize, they like shut all that down. Um, the nice thing about um, about decentralized systems is that you can't shut it down, right? We couldn't if we hated Kitty Hats, we couldn't shut it down. Um, and I mean, yay, we loved it, right? And we were actually promoted it. But but if it had been something that that we you know for some reason felt like it was um, was limiting our ability, but which our users liked, like, 
the users would still get to choose. Um, and I think that that, that power is, is I, I think that that's going to be the, the real change that's going to come is, is that users are going to have so much more control over how, what software they're using, how it interacts. Um, and, and they'll be able to start mixing and matching different backend service providers with different front ends, um, with different services. Um, and, and that, I mean that 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 just broke the whole whole doors off. <laughs> have you have you guys like given have you personally given much thought about like at what point does the you know arbitrary set of bits on Ethereum become a crypto kitty? Like you know, do you, do you see the question I'm asking? It's kind of like a philosophical question. <laughs> like at the end of the day, right? It's just like there's some bits on and some machine, right, in Ethereum on some on some node. Those bits are not actually a crypto kitty, but like something about the network effects of the users and then the humans that are built up around it actually makes it so, right? I I mean, it's an interesting question, but honestly, I'm not sure the answer is much different than what makes a, a collection of atoms into a rock uh, versus a carrot, right? Like it happens in our brains, right? Like that's the important part. Um, and you know, lots of, lots of projects, especially EVM based projects will port the CryptoKitty smart contracts, right? They want to, they want to show that their network has the, you know, the ability to do what, you know, the thing that, that broke the Ethereum network. Um, but, but those are all, and you know, and no one is trying to fool anyone, right? It's a demo. It's not, they're not trying to claim this is the new CryptoKitties, but like no one, even if they tried, no one would believe them, right? Like the, there is, because the, the true CryptoKitty, yeah, it, it, it lives in people's minds, and and so um, <laughs> it's inside all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, and so, but I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's true of all of all human things, right? Like, when does a bunch of people like making crazy motions in front of a camera become a movie? Right? It's when that that series of sequences tell us a story to us. So, so so to me, I think that part is like both the opportunity and the challenge in, in gaming and crypto. Because I think somebody like Fortnite, if they put their assets in Ethereum, it might be interesting. And like maybe they'll generate, you know, more volume or whatever than anyone else, but they still own it, right? And like if that game pulls the plug on it, they just become bits, right? There's like a moment where it goes from being stuff that's in Fortnite and that you can play with and then to just bits on this on the Ethereum that are paying gas right to be there. And like, I, I, to me, like, I don't know when that happens or why. <laughs> and like, if you can crack that, right, you're effectively creating value out of bits and in, in digital bits, right? And there, I think like maybe a hundred, you know, like maybe not a hundred, but maybe a few years, 10 years from now, I think that's where like so, so much potential could be created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's exactly the way I think about it is, is that I think the most interesting examples in this space are when uh, the when somebody else can come along and create a different interface or a different way of interacting with that thing. And it's still fundamentally the same thing. Um, so, you know, like, uh, you know, you can use the Augur website to go and create futures markets on Augur. Um, but you could also go and I mean, I'm sure it would be very painful, but you could go and use my crypto wallet and and do the same thing. And it would still be fundamentally Augur. And so I think that's that's an example of a project that's really managed to keep that all in. Right. Crypto kitties. We have that data availability problem with the, the kitty data lives on our servers right now. And we don't you know, there isn't robust infrastructure, decentralized infrastructure for that data to be stored. We're starting to see stuff come online now. Right. With Sia coin finally going live and filecoin coming up soon and and so you know we're getting really close to that point but um that's you know it doesn't integrate well with with the ethereum blockchain and you know the the tools still aren't you know as easy to use as something like s3 um but i think that we'll get to that point where where you can say that this thing exists independently of its creators in the same way that you know um my car exists independently of Toyota, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think that's when true ownership really becomes really powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the promise of the space. And it's such a subtle thing that, I don't, you know, the people in the space realize it, but when you kind of talk to the normals, they, <laughs> they don't fully get it, right? There's a huge difference between like stuff on the internet and stuff in Ethereum, 
like a crypto kitty that actually is that thing, right? That object. The, the closest I've gotten to explaining it to people is to say like, if there is a file on your computer, you own that, you know that you own that, right? But no one else cares, right? Like if you go to someone and you say something important about that file, they don't care. You could have edited it. You could have done anything to it. And the power of the internet was, is that we could put things on somebody else's computer. And so you and I could put to put something on Facebook's computer or Google's computer. And I would trust that you hadn't fiddled with it because why would Google let you fiddle with it, right? Um, and so that, that created a bunch of value, but it's still someone else's computer, right? It's just Google now. Um, and what's amazing is, is that the blockchain is, is a computer that we can all use, but no, it's no one else's computer. It's everyone's computer. And so, you know, you can't fiddle with the bits in CryptoKitties and I can't fiddle with the bits in CryptoKitties. And so we can both trust CryptoKitties in a way. And we don't even need to count on Google or the Ethereum Foundation or Vitalik to be good actors because it's actually autonomous. And so, you know, when something lives on somebody else's computer, um, you don't own it. But when something lives on everybody's computer, we actually do own it. Um, and that, 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 that triggers something in some people's minds. Um, it's, it's still, it takes a little while to internalize it. Um, but, but I think that that, that someone else's computer is, is a, a worthwhile line. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That, that's a good way to put it. And like, all you need is a private key, right? To actually own a piece of this computer, which can be self-generated. It's open, permissionless. It, it is a world computer. Um, uh, you guys mentioned, do you mentioned CM? I'm wondering, have you guys thought about like, this is a problem I'm sure you're going to face, right? You're going to run a high TPS chain with, with single sharded. What are you going to do with all the data? Like the actual block, the, the blockchain, <laughs> those blocks, where are they going to go? <laughs> yeah, we, we made a decision pretty early on that that was, that was a problem that we didn't need to solve on launch day. Um, and we, we, we wouldn't have felt good, I think, building the project, starting the project, if we didn't know that it was a solvable problem. Um, but we didn't have to know exactly the shape of the solution. And so I think that you look at stuff like AR Weave, which is, you know, long-term storage um, uh, solution. You look at Filecoin, you look at SiaCoin. Um, there's there's enough mechanisms. We, we, have, we have a pretty good understanding of how you can incentivize people to store stuff, how you can verify that people have storing stuff that um, that we can, you know, internally, we, we use this term storage node, right? Like there, maybe there's people who that's their whole job is they just store old data and uh, they get paid a very small amount to store it, but it's more than the cost of actually holding onto those hard drives. And if you have enough redundancy, then you're actually in pretty good shape. Um, and, um, and so are those separate nodes or do we just, you know, in our case, the, we have these, uh, these verifier nodes that um, uh, are checking the execution nodes work. And so they have a copy of, of all the data. So maybe we just incentivize them to hold on to it instead of just throwing it away when they're done doing their job. Um, but it does seem like it's a solvable problem. The, the more interesting problem that's a little bit harder to solve is, is then how do you, okay, that's great for block data. Um, and, but what about bulk storage, right? What about something like the images associated with CryptoKitties, right? Like, Yes, you could put that in the same storage as the smart contract stuff, but that data has, you know, is has to be available, has to be, you Way know, tracked. And, yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah. just going to be more expensive. And so, can we have a bulk storage thing that is in some way accessible from a smart contract without it having to be so expensive as the like the smart contract state information? Um, I think that's an interesting problem that I don't know that anyone's really tackling. I know that, you know, the original vision of Ethereum had this notion of the swarm network, but that doesn't seem to be moving forward at all anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with your sentiment. When we started, we had this, we had a design for what we'll called them replicators then, archivers now. And now that we're kind of, you know, like engineers can only pick a feature set or, or a date. Now that we've picked a date, that's that feature is not going to be implemented. Uh, so from our perspective, like I started actually doing my research, and now I see that it is potentially possible to 
to like a almost like a bridge between SIA and a smart, a powerful enough smart contract engine like us or you guys, to where now we can get proofs of object storage, and then all we need to do is just pay for those proofs that somebody is somewhere storing this ledger. Um, so some of those problems, I agree with you, I think are solvable. But at the same time, like there's still this like kind of mess of you have this enormous blockchain. How do you verify it? Like the computational growth, you know, in theory, like compute doubles every two years. So it should take no more than two years worth of compute power to verify the entire thing from start to bottom. Right. <laughs> uh, but that becomes like an expensive proposition. And to me, that's like a fundamental thing that I don't know if there is a solution without some kind of magic snarks. <laughs> we'll just wave snarks around there. <laughs> well, I, I, there's a part of me that feels like that that sometimes in in this community we get a little bit we, we get a little bit too excited about about proving like going from the Genesis block, right? Like, oh, I don't trust Bitcoin unless I start with the Genesis block and go all the way up to here. Well, yeah, but you trust github right because you downloaded the code from them right like like you're trust, you know you're trusting something somewhere along the lines and so do i think that that means that you know we just publish a hash every day and then throw out all the history at that point no no of course not but i mean there there comes a point and and you know and you can say it's one year you can say it's one month you can say it's 10 years um but there comes a point at which it it the idea that the 10 year old hash that we have um it, that has been like published in like a million places at this point in time is no longer trustworthy. We have to go all the way back to the Genesis block that, that just, that just starts to become silly. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and so at the end of the day, these networks matter because of the social consensus they create. Um, and the technological consensus allows us to have way less friction, way less communication at the social layer to come to that social consensus. But, you know, whether you're looking at, you know, Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum Classic, like what really matters is the social consensus. Um, and so um, I, I think that we that we need to be able to leverage that uh, at some level um, and be able to say that at some point in time, it's far enough back in history that we don't actually need to check every single one of those blocks. And yeah, sure, people will, right? Like people do all sorts of crazy stuff and 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 more power to them. But I don't think that means that every single person who's booting up a node um, needs to go go to that extent. I agree with you. I think that, that like, again, that's kind of a similar approach. So I'll defend you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, anyone, if anyone says, like, I, I also, like, it, it's just... The, the idea that this technology needs to be verified from scratch is like what I think allows some of the early social networks to form, like around Bitcoin. I think that idea is what formed Bitcoin, but we're almost building on top of that social consensus now. People, have, people now understand that these systems could exist and the fact that they have like consistent globally distributed state right? You don't have to verify it from start to finish. You can just know that this thing is alive, right? More or less, right? The, the, the Petri dish has started growing, right? And the mold is out of the, <laughs> the mold like got out of the Petri dish, right? Then it's there, right? It's done. <laughs> like, I, I think, I think in a lot of ways, like Bitcoin started in the Petri dish and now like we've crawled out of it and we can start building more interesting things. Yeah, it's a, it's a great analogy. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is really interesting. Like, of course, you know, the the Bitcoin example is has got to loom large in our minds, but I also think that we can't get religious about it. Um, and and I think that there's some uh, yeah, some stuff like like this, like, you know, sort of demanding history from the Genesis block. Uh, again, that, I think that makes sense for a year or for five years, something like that. But, you know, like. I personally love the idea that CryptoKitties will exist in a hundred years, that Flow will exist in a hundred years. And I, uh, at some point in time, someone somewhere is going to go, you know what? We don't actually need to check all the data from the 2020s anymore, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> at, at some level, that data becomes cheaper to check, right? Because they imagine computers are going to be a lot faster, right? So, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if it's a problem that, that just always be like, it solved because we'll always be like at least like okay i can spin up an aws node 
that can do this thing in a day, but it'll cost me like a thousand bucks. Well, but you know, if computers get fast enough, then suddenly we can't count on those, the, the, the hash proofs, right. Going back far enough. Yeah. Um, suddenly it, it becomes possible to, to do more, more, you know, whether it's the, the, um, the hashing algorithms, right? Like we, you know, quantum computers, the the signing algorithms. And again, I I have absolute faith that this technology, that that the active blockchains will be able to move to quantum resistant encryption and quantum resistant hashing algorithms. Um, you know, years before those attacks become plausible. Um, but that doesn't mean that the code we're shipping today isn't going to be vulnerable, and that you couldn't go back and and falsify genesis blocks with a quantum computer in in 30 years um and so um i don't know i i think i i think that the social norms will form up around it um and uh and i don't think they'll be necessarily as draconian as as some people would like <laughs> cool yeah i agree cool well um it's been really amazing to talk to, to you like i think we have a uh, you know great minds think alike, so I think we have a lot of similar ideas, and I'm I am super excited about the work you guys are doing on the language front. Like uh, I'm I'm glad there's other teams tackling problems that we don't have resources to solve that like, and they're doing it the way that I would do it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just like uh, super stoked about that. So um, yeah, uh, always uh, our doors are always open. You know, let let ideas flow like so right <laughs> so yeah it's been awesome to have you on the podcast too well it was uh it was a real pleasure to be here take care cool awesome